0: listeners, welcome to the Ijano-class. I'm your host, John A. Lancaster. And no, I did not make a typo trying to spell intelligence in the title. By intelligens, with a Z that is, I'm referring to a cognitive concept I discovered from the late educational theorist Albert J. Nock in his 1928 book, On Doing the Right Thing. Nock defines intelligence as, quote, the power invariably in Plato's phrase, to see things as they are, to survey them and one's own relations to them with objective disinterestedness, and to apply one's consciousness to them simply and directly. Letting it take its own way over them uncharted by prepossession, unchanneled by prejudice and above all, controlled by routine and formula." Some of you may be wondering what this sort of, uh, let's say, objective reasoning has to do with the second part of the episode's title, The Vice Presidential Debate. I'm going to put it bluntly, the Vice Presidential Debate wasn't a debate at all. It was, at best, a rhetorical talking point contest virtually none of the questions were answered directly by any candidate and both candidates were heavily occupied with weaving appealing narratives for their running mates rather than giving in-depth analysis of their running mates policies both candidates were basically answering their own questions almost regardless of the moderator even when there were attempts to argue a fact-based claim They were weaved into some long-winded, dramatized, Hollywood-esque delivery, which placed more emphasis on the storytelling aspect than the factual content. I could pull a few examples from both candidates to illustrate my point, but I would be placed in the same position as the proverbial fly in the nudist colony. For the time expediency of this episode, it would be best for anyone to listen to up to ten minutes of any given portion of the debate and see for themselves the examples were littered throughout the event in short there was little if any educational or enlightening value from that debate but fortunately from what i can tell many onlookers have realized this not just one side either people from across the ideological political spectrum who watched the debate realize It was an intellectual sham. I suppose you could say intelligence is being employed by these people. Now this is not to say that the more objective take is universal. There are more than enough pundits and spellbound cult of personality followers who staunchly took one side or the other as a winner, so to speak. A careful selection of the abundant sound bites from the debate will uh, make this kind of assertion convenient for basically any partisan purpose. Of course, it's expected for pundits to take a side regardless of outcome, their livelihoods depend on it anyway. The especially troubling part concerns the spellbound followers who are grandiloquently smokescreened into sincerely supporting the narratives put forth by the vice presidential debate I'm specifically referencing the first portion of the debate, which was centered around the coronavirus and steps to mitigate the resultant economic damage and public health crisis. While the topic was talked about extensively, the economic downturns, origins and causes were masked by everyone involved in the debate. Everyone involved focused on the damaged economy exclusively in the present tense and tried to route it solely to Trump's decision making. Furthermore, it was passively assumed that the lockdowns were a suitable solution for moving forward. This is where intelligence, as I mentioned before, becomes crucial. Blanketly accepting these implications regarding COVID-19 will lead one onto false pretenses. It does not take a nobel laureate caliber mind to unravel the inaccuracies laced within the debate's dialogue what it does take is an unbridled unbiased critical and honest look into the development of this year's events in order to get an accurate representation of the current state of affairs first off regarding the economic recession This catastrophe rests squarely on the shoulders of the governors, mayors, council members, and other state and local officials who became emperors overnight due to their emergency powers. This was the group that started the lockdowns in the states and municipalities, which illegalized operating certain businesses. Remember the term non-essential businesses? the state and local governments, not Trump or any federal entity, closed down the non-essential dubbed businesses indefinitely. Conservative estimates number the amount of permanent closures at around 60 to 80,000. Remember the names Carl Mankey and Shelley Luther? The barbershop owner and the salon owner who bucked their community's shutdown orders just five months ago? Luther, of Dallas, Texas, was sentenced to jail and had a $7,000 fine levied against her for opening her salon in defiance of shelter-in-place orders. It was the state of Texas and her respective county that ordered her to close in the first place. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer saw to it that Mankey's barber license was suspended, which came after she failed to have his business shut down via court order. These are just prominent examples that made national news, but they are representative of the predicaments that small business owners across the country faced at the hands of their local officials. Mind you, only six states were not subjected to a lockdown. Even though that doesn't mean those states were shielded from the ripple effect of the national recession, it shows you how prevalent those forced business closures were. Those forced business closures which put people out of work and ran people out of business. Those forced business closures that relegated people to waiting in long lines for food donations because they couldn't afford to feed themselves or their families. Those forced business closures that led to huge increases in welfare applications. Remember, before the George Floyd incident, that was all the news talked about. For months, the state and local level bureaucrats and politicians wrecked that havoc on the economy. Big box stores weren't spared from the restrictions either. I know of at least two states, Vermont and Michigan, where such stores were banned from selling non-essential goods. In Michigan, stores were even banned from advertising non-essential goods. Remember when there was a huge fuss about the constitutionality of these lockdowns? Those concerns weren't levied against the federal government, but the no less tyrannical state and local governments. Taking this information into consideration, it's obviously inappropriate to charge the unemployment rate and business closures against the presidency. But that's precisely what the viewers were fed during the debate. The trouble doesn't stop here either. Government-imposed COVID-19 public health measures and the resultant economic and social disaster were talked about as if they were not inextricably linked. Make no mistake about it. The economy took a downturn because the state and local government took public health measures. If you forcibly close businesses, make it illegal for them to operate for weeks on end and curb consumption to only essentials, poverty will be inevitable. Somehow, this common sense was absent among the participants. Common sense was also absent regarding the social consequences of the lockdown, the increase in suicide hotline calls because of the stress stay-at-home orders placed on the lives of citizens wasn't mentioned nor were the cases of the vulnerable spouses being locked up with their abusers or of children being stuck with their molesters mentioned these incidents have been reported on extensively these are real people and the real repercussions suffered by those under the thumb of so-called public servants in fact an assistant dean at the university of washington's school of social work described the lockdown as quote the perfect storm for someone who wants to isolate or hurt their partners you can't tell somebody to leave because there's no place to go unquote again It's important to stay vigilant when faced with political narratives and practice intelligence, as I mentioned earlier. Checking for logical consistency and adhering to facts and historical record will help prevent bamboozlement. No matter how well a speech is crafted, how witty a soundbite is, or how one feels after a talk, rhetoric can never undo reality. One can neither deal with reality or suffer unintended consequences. That's it for this episode of the ijano class. The relevant links are in the description. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a like, spread the word, and share on social media. You might also be interested in my essays, poetry, and curated videos, which you'll be directed to on the links page of my website, johnalancaster.com. Thank you for listening. God bless.